This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today, we're joined by an interprofessional team to discuss culturally responsive care in audiology, and specifically what audiologists can do to better serve diverse clients. For instance, high school Nicholas Stanley and Samuel Bradley didn't expect to be working together as adults, but a friendly conversation over a post-Christmas breakfast during the holidays sparked a professional collaboration. Nicholas is an audiologist and a faculty member at Illinois State University. Samuel is a social worker and a faculty member at the Boston College School of Social Work. Last year, Nicholas and Samuel presented on the subject of disrupting racial bias in audiology as a part of the 2020 ASHA Signature Series. This wasn't their first presentation together. Samuel previously joined Nicholas's University of Illinois course on amplification selection and fitting for a conversation on recognizing and disrupting racial bias in audiology. And it's in that course that we'll pick up the conversation today. Nicholas speaks first. I thought this class was the right opportunity because that selection and fitting course is where we start to take the knowledge that we have about the different devices, the different hearing aids, assisted listening devices, and start to match it to our patients. Which patient is going to succeed with which type of technology? And what we have to consider in that is who those patients are. And it's easy to just think that we can have all the best equipment and give our best equipment to all of our patients and they'll all succeed. But maybe that's not the case. And I think that's something that we have to open our eyes to and look at that Our patients come with backgrounds that we need to consider as we make these recommendations about selection and fitting. Is it something that you were thinking about as well, Samuel? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that always astounds me is when we start talking about evidence-based practice, we oftentimes stop short of the three pillars. The first two pillars are understanding the research and knowing what the best practice in terms of interventions are. The second one is you know, having the clinical expertise and applying that, you know, so you see things that you can kind of pick up variations among patients and among clients. Uh, But the third thing that we rarely ever hear folks discuss is actually what is the expectations, the values, and the experiences that our patients and clients bring to the clinic that set the tone for how we should be proceeding with them. I think, you know, when you talk about amplification and fitting, that's exactly the moment where you need to be talking to your clients saying, what are your needs? You've been collaborating, looking at where disparities show up in audiological practice. What can you tell us about how racial bias shows up in patient outcomes? I'll take that one. The very first thing is that for many practitioners, they're probably listening to this or thinking to themselves, I'm not a racist. And so therefore, like I bring the most whole treatment modalities and interventions to my patients. And I'm over here to be like, sure, you may think that you're not perpetrating any instances of racial abuse, but the reality is is that one, no one knows the ins and outs of every specific racial and ethnic group. And all of us share within a set of unconscious biases, right? They're just things that we're not aware of. Oftentimes built off of just sort of the models of how we've been taught to practice for so long. And because of those sets of assumptions that we make, we're not really breaking down every single aspect of the client experience, the patient experience, to ask ourselves where we might actually have behaved differently to make the patient more successful. 
and treatments. Well, you, you may say, well, you know, my practice is just good practice. And so therefore I don't have to do anything to change where I am. Well, if folks don't have access to a car or transportation, then it can then suddenly become really difficult and, and the patient may have to cancel or reschedule several times. The way in which we even acknowledge each other, the cultural standards around how we greet each other, how we engage and talk with each other. In some BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, People of Color groups, the audiologist is the end-all expert, and those groups may require additional coaxing for them to explain further the presenting problem. So you have a stronger understanding of what you're actually treating. They've been taught sort of in the, the face of these professionals to not speak up too much, right? Like not to intervene in their own treatment because that person knows enough to, to sort of just fix me. Uh, Samuel, I want to make sure I'm following along here. What you're saying is in some communities, it would be less likely that someone would ask questions of Correct. a medical professional? Correct. Interrupt, ask questions, even correct the medical professional to let them know like, hey, actually, you, you said that information, but it was incorrect. Is there a way that you might recommend that, that an audiologist changes their approach in a situation like this? It's all about relationship building. So taking the time to greet the patient, taking the time to ask them questions about their personal lives, perhaps details that you may have learned from interactions before, you know, if they've mentioned family members, tell me about your family. If they've mentioned, you know, how someone's doing, you can ask the names. How are, how is such and such? How's John Smith doing? You mentioned them before in our prior meeting to show that you're engaged with them and that you're paying attention is actually in itself a kind of specific uh, innovation. We really have to show our engagement with people on a one-to-one level to let them know that we really care. You can't sort of force people, right, like to disclose, but at least engaging with them means that you increase the chances that that will happen. We talk about rapport all the time, and it's definitely something that we still have to work with with all of our patients. Samuel, what you were talking about uh, made me think about, you know, this key concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That inclusion piece is about belongingness. It's about having environments where patients feel like they belong and feel like they have some amount of safeness and welcomingness. And I think that's part of the audiologist's role is to manage that inclusion with their patients. Yeah, yeah. And creating space so that it's possible that the patient feels like they're welcome to come back or get take an active role in their own treatment. You can say things like, you know, um, in the past, this has worked really well in the clinic. And then, you know, patients go home and realize that they need a, an adjustment. You're more than welcome to come back if you feel that way. And then telling stories about, you know, challenges that folks have faced with amplification also helps to humanize the experience. So it allows the patient to see themselves as having to become an active participant in what's happening to them. Absolutely. I I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like everybody wants to be a good audiologist, but the implicit bias is the area that we have the most opportunity to work on and be aware of. And the subtle things that really sort of unconscious to us that we may do that may have an impact on one of our patients that to us, it's absolutely nothing, but to them, it may be perceived as something that is uh, offensive or um, derogatory. 
because we're talking about implicit bias, how is it that audiologists can maybe find some of these so that they can work towards better patient outcomes? That, I think, really goes into applying cultural mindfulness to your practice. You know, mindfulness is something that is we're trying to be aware of not only our inward aspects, you know, who we are as a person, who we are as an audiologist, but also applying that mindfulness to our external settings, you know, being aware of the environments we're in, being aware of the patients we're interacting with and using that mindfulness to evaluate what implicit bias we may have. We're not going to be aware of something like implicit bias without trying to be effortful and being aware of it. So I think that the application of cultural mindfulness is the key to recognizing when we may have instances of implicit bias. When we come back, I asked Nicholas and Samuel to share a few things audiologists can do to combat implicit bias. Interested in learning more about implicit bias? Check out the ASHA Voices archive. I would recommend the episode from last February featuring Ijoma Aluo. If you've been hearing the word microaggressions recently, but aren't sure what it means, this is the episode for you. And you can always find resources from ASHA's Office of Multicultural Affairs. Go to asha.org and search for the word multicultural. By doing a quick search, you'll find many resources to help you further develop your cultural competency. And you can visit thatsunheardof.org. The award-winning ASHA project features a variety of tools to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Find them at thatsunheardof.org. One more resource I want to highlight is a recent book from ASHA Press. The book is called Exploring Cultural Responsiveness, Guided Scenarios for Communication, Sciences, and Disorders Professionals. The book is designed to help audiologists and speech-language pathologists reflect on and cultivate cultural competence through guided scenarios and questions. Find it online in the ASHA store. As a part of the 2020 ASHA Signature Series, Nicholas and Samuel presented on the topic of recognizing and disrupting racial bias in audiologic clinical practice. You can find that full presentation in the ASHA store. With this presentation in mind, I asked what the pair might suggest if they were to identify two or three things an audiologist could do to incorporate ways of disrupting racial bias. Being mindful of the differences of the patient that you're working with and not just sort of assuming similarities that may not be there. I think that that would be the first thing is, you know, being mindful of how race can influence your interactions with your patients. Yeah. And what, and what does that look like in the practice? So when we talk about race, that is then the doorway to understanding that cultural experience can be different, right? And so when we say cultural experience, that means attitudes, beliefs, values, and behaviors. And so if we're paying attention to those things, then that means that we are oftentimes, it's informing the way that we're interacting with the client, the way that different cultural groups engage and show engagement with one another can be through warm welcomes, conversations about one's family and home life, really spending time to get to know each other. I think for Nicholas and I, both as Southerners, we both know you don't go walking into a, a hamburger joint and order a burger without asking the, the cashier how they're doing, 
right? Um, <laughs> there's a, a specific sort of cultural um, piece. Now, up here in Boston, where I'm at right now, um, they could care less how you're doing. Just tell them what you want. <laughs> you know, there, there are differences in engagement across both um, geography, but really it, it becomes very salient when we start talking about uh, racial identity. I think another thing that we can do as audiologists to work towards disrupting racial bias is to challenge ourselves um, to move out of comfort zones that have racial bounds or cultural bounds um, to challenge ourselves to learn more about other cultures that we may interact with. Specifically, if there's a culture that we interact with significantly in our workplace, uh, learning more about those cultures, not just in the realm of audiology and how audiologic decisions are made, but just in general, what, what is that culture like? What is, what does that culture prioritize? Um, how do family dynamics work within that culture? It's funny because before I started working as a, a professor, I was working as a fundraiser for seven years. And Nicholas and I have talked about this before, like how, how interesting it is, because one of the things that you do as a fundraiser, uh, when you're getting ready to ask somebody for $1,000, $10,000, a million dollars, is you say, you know, who makes decisions about money in your family. And somebody might say to you, actually, oh, my partner and I both make decisions about money. So if you want to ask us for a gift, you need to ask us together. And we oftentimes don't think that same way uh, when we're talking about medical health because it's so individualized. You know, so even how do you want to make this decision about, you know, what your your health needs are? It's like actually I'd prefer it if my spouse was in the room, if my partner was here to help me. We can't do that, obviously, in the, the COVID world. But just thinking about the way that folks even make decisions with regards to family structures can be an important aspect. This seems so obvious, and yet I think it, it bears saying is like, what even is the, the patient's you know, level of proclivity with speaking the English language, for instance? And then who is translating it? Is it a partner or is it a child, right? Yeah, and to think about like if it's issues of English as a second language or having an interpreter, is it a family member that's relaying medical information or is it a professional interpreter who likely goes about relaying that information in a very different manner than a family member would? And that those things come into play. And, and what you mentioned, Samuel, about who makes medical decisions – that's another thing that there's not a one prescription for everybody, right? That that's almost really a patient by patient basis and, and generating that conversation to figure out who needs to be involved in that discussion. So anything else you might recommend to audiologists looking to recognize and disrupt racial bias? Just that this journey is a in fact a journey and not a a forty-five minute webinar, which is important, right? It's And it's also not like a 45-minute like podcast. It's a process that we engage in. And the charge here is to make ourselves better practitioners. And so to invest in our own development means investing in learning more in this area. It's easy to compartmentalize because it seems so daunting of a task. And it seems like conversations that we aren't 
allowed to partake in or that maybe we shouldn't partake in or fear of having missteps uh, along having this conversation. And I think we need to practice some amount of forgiveness for ourselves and forgiveness of the others that we interact with. Have things changed at all for you two? Like through working together, have you learned anything from each other professionally that, that you didn't expect? It's been an interesting parallel journey of, I think, sharing and growing closer. I feel from just being able to have one conversations about race and racism, but also to take it further and talk about how we're doing in our daily lives, how's family life going, how's work going, and seeing the connections between our two professions has really helped to illuminate for me how important these discussions can be. And also, as a social worker, knowing nothing about communication science disorders, I realize how important that is for my own community, like the Black community, how oftentimes so many groups can be underserved. And it really has made me feel more passionately about all the different ways that we should be having this discussion to really improve the overall well-being of BIPOC communities. And for me, it's been really rewarding to work with a friend, somebody that I've known for so long. We have a lot of skills and tools that we can bring to the table to really work on this challenging topic and finding out ways to address these issues and and finding ways to achieve better patient outcomes. It obviously was challenging for me to bring this into my professional life to bring these topics into my professional lives. It was, it was a little bit scary to be honest as you know, it, it's can be a hotbed and of discussion and highly opinionated, but I felt like through the relationship I have with Samuel, I had somebody that I could go into this arena with and, and be able to have somebody have my back and have somebody that was knowledgeable in the area and somebody that I could go to with questions and somebody I could go to with ideas and get feedback that was not going to be judged more than a friend would judge it. The biggest thing that I've enjoyed uh, working with Samuel has been being able to work with a friend on a very important topic. I want to thank both of you for your time today. I'm Samuel Bradley. Nicholas Stanley, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's it for this week. Find Samuel Bradley and Nicholas Stanley's full presentation from the 2020 ASHA Signature Series at ASHA.org. We'll put a link to it on the blog post for this episode at leader.pubs.asha.org. While you're there, check out last week's episode of the podcast, Hearing Aid Uses Up in the U.S., but audiologist Nick Reed says that when he looked closer at the numbers, he discovered a troubling story. It's clearly turning into some sort of divergent haves and have-nots. Find that in your podcast feed or on our website at leader.pubs.asha.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence, I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.